Welcome to the Loco Podcast by Locomotion Fitness, where our coaching team covers all things fitness, nutrition, mindset, and recovery-related in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Loco Podcast. I am Coach Jay. I am here with Nate from Be Better PT. Um, and we've got a pretty cool topic today. Um, talking about prehab, rehab, pain, um, really all Nate's specialty as a physical therapist. Yeah, so I am a doctor of physical therapy. Uh, I graduated from MUSC in 2016. Uh, my undergrad was in exercise science. Um, really always been into like lifting weights basically. Like I did, you know, I did track and cross country in high school, but like really wanted to lift heavy things. Uh, and I compete, uh, now I compete in strongman in weight class strongman. So under 80 kilograms or under 175 pounds. Um, so I did, I want to say probably four years, pretty hardcore into CrossFit. Um, I was like, I want to go to regionals and that was never <laughs> everyone's um, dream back. Yeah. In the day. Yeah. Zero <laughs> chance of that ever happening. But, um, so pretty, pretty extensive background just in like various lifting activities and CrossFit and that kind of thing. Um, I would, I would describe my, uh, overarching philosophy of physical therapy as like a movement optimist basically. So except, or basically saying that the body can adapt to, uh, what you expose it to if you expose it slowly enough and the resources are there for it to adapt to it. Um, and that there's really no, there's no like black and white, bad or good movement, right? Like there's, there, it's always contextual whether or not something is good or bad. Um, and being an athlete and like, especially competing in strongman, strongman has, uh, it's, it's not a high injury rate. It's like four injuries per thousand hours of training, but it's the highest injury rate out of all the lifting sports, higher than bodybuilding, CrossFit and powerlifting. Um, and I do, I'm pretty good at hurting myself. Um, <laughs> part of why I went to PT school, but so, uh, being an athlete, I, I understand the mindset of like, Hey, my shoulder hurts, but I'd really like to keep doing stuff. Right. Or, um, Hey, my knee hurts. How do I get back to this? I'm never going to tell someone like, um, that wants to keep squatting. Like, Hey, you can't squat anymore. Like, Oh, my back hurts. You can never deadlift again. That's never going to come out of my mouth. So, um, yeah, helping people get back to what they want to do basically is. And how is that different from, you know, if somebody just were to walk into a a PT clinic Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, go to the more traditional model Mm -hmm. in in somebody that's a regular physical therapist? Yeah. So, uh, my model works a little bit differently. I don't take insurance. So everything is out of pocket. And, um, what that allows me to do is spend a lot of time with one-on-one, uh, appointments. And so like, like for example, my initial evaluations generally run around 90 minutes. Sometimes if there's time after it'll, it'll exceed that amount of time. Um, and so it allows me to really dig into stuff and to give people long-term plans. And so if you go to a more traditional PT place, um, you're most likely, it's not everyone, right. But the models there most likely work on, you're going to be coming in two to three times a week. You're going to have, uh, probably pretty underloaded exercises. So, you know, a high level athlete that can squat 400 pounds might go in and get like straight leg raises on a laying on a table, right? That's, that's not going to do anything. So, um, you know, basically meeting people closer to where they're at, uh, ability wise and being able to give people a plan that they can execute on their own. So you don't have to come in two to three times a week, that kind of thing. Um, and again, with, with, uh, I really, really enjoy like the science behind like strength training and, and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like I dig into it pretty well. Um, and so 
really being able to narrow down exactly what's going on with someone and why they're having issues, if, if there is a specific reason why they're having issues. Um, and, and the one-on-one appointments really help me to be able to do that. It's, it's hard in a more traditional setting and it's not the physical therapist's fault, but like if you're seeing three to four people every hour, like you're, you just can't give people the attention they need. For so, sure. I mean, it's the same problem with our healthcare system at yeah. large, right? Yeah, just it's the whole like thing. insurance based and you've got to see a ton of people every single day in order to write those codes so that your, your yep. business can get reimbursed. Yep. And that makes it so that, um, the doctor can only be with you for 10 minutes. Yep. And, and if you are anything different from their normal cookie cutter person, mm-hmm. they don't really have the time to deal with it. Right. Yeah. And they're just going to sort of slide you in. And again, like Nate said, this isn't everybody, but mm-hmm. a lot of times they're going to fi- find a template that, that you come close to fitting mm-hmm. and tell you, you're going to do this thing, even though it's not remotely in line with what you should be doing. Like you said, if yeah. you're squatting 400 pounds doing a straight leg race, probably not going to do much. Right? Yeah. Um, all right. So let's get into it a little bit here. What, what do you think are some big mistakes that you see people making when it comes to just injury at large? Um, so probably, you know, I was, was going to say it depends on the, on the lifting sport, but I think it's, it's probably the same across most of them actually, uh, maybe not like powerlifting necessarily, but so for like CrossFit and strongman, there's a lot of really athletic high velocity movements, right? Like you're in, in CrossFit, you're doing kipping pull-ups, which I'm, I love kipping pull-ups, right? But like you're doing kipping pull-ups. So there's a lot of velocity. There's uh, clean and jerks. There's wall balls where you're catching and throwing a wall up and down. There's, there's a lot of running. There's a lot of jumping and that kind of stuff. Um, in strongman, you're doing like, you know, yoke carries where you're, you're trying to like basically sprint with 600 pounds on your back. Um, it's, it's more of a waddle, um, but, you know, you're, you're trying to produce a lot of speed with very, very heavy loads. Um, and same with the overhead stuff, like the overhead stuff in strongman is the same as in CrossFit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you, so to get into like physics, just a little bit, it's more complicated than this, but like, just to kind of illustrate it. So like force equals mass times acceleration, right? So the amount of force your tissues experience is multiplied when the acceleration increases and acceleration is the the change in velocity from one time to another. Right. So when you, when you do like a clean and jerk, um, and there's a really high acceleration deceleration, basically like you're exploding off your shoulders and then you're catching very quickly at the top. Um, the amount of force your tissues experience with that is much, much, much higher than like a heavy strict press. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if the load is the same, the force is still higher and it's only for like a very, very short period of time, but it's high force. And so that high force creates, um, I think probably, uh, a little bit more injury risk than, um, people really expect out of it. Cause you think like you do a kipping pull up, it's easier than a pull up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you clean and jerk 185. It's easier than strict pressing 185, but the actual tissue forces on, on some of the tissues are higher with those high velocity movements. And so, but they're not the right stimulus to create a whole lot of actual tissue adaptation to those movements. Right. So like you don't, there's a reason bodybuilders don't do like clean and jerking, right. They're trying to make their muscles as big as possible. And so, uh, doing those high velocity movements, they doesn't necessarily get them there. Like there's a very traditional way bodybuilders tend to train and it seems to work to make their muscles bigger. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, and that's not saying CrossFit athletes aren't swole. Sure. Sure. Um, but so what, what there can, what can, what you can get is as your nervous system becomes more efficient with movement and as you get better at movements and as you increase the volume of these high velocity movements, so you get high volume, high velocity movements, um, 
your tissues can reach the point of like being unable to recover or unable to adapt to that stress a lot more quickly than if you were doing like traditional like bodybuilding type training, right? And so um, you're not getting as much tissue adaptation to it because it's not the right stimulus to do. It's not the best stimulus to do that. Um, but you're getting a lot of actual tissue stress. And so injury rate goes up. And so then, especially in like CrossFitters, you'll get like that long head bicep tendon in the front of the shoulder, just uh, strongman too, like with like, that's like the most common shoulder injury. Sure. Cross, probably CrossFit. Um, and it's just because the high velocity kipping and it's the high velocity pressing and like snatching and like I've torn mine snatching, you know, sure. um, and stuff like that. So I think the biggest, sorry, that was a really long roundabout. No, that's Coming, okay. Bringing it back around. I think the biggest mistake is probably focusing almost a little too much on like the, the like performing in a wad, like getting the most pull-ups in that you can versus like doing actual strict uh, bodybuilding type work. Right. And so that's when people come in, that's really for most people, I would say that's probably the treatment I give them is like, we're just going to do bodybuilding for this body part. Like if you, if you come in with patellar tendinopathy, like we're, we're probably just going to do like bodybuilding style training for your quad and your hamstring and your calf and things that touch the knee joint. Right. Um, and so stuff that just has a lower velocity. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, and, and has a, a longer loading time on the, on the tissue so yeah. that it has a chance to actually adapt. Cause if something's yeah. high velocity, you're popping in and out of that so mm-hmm. quickly, the muscle is gaining strength, but the tissue yeah. that supports it is, is not right. Essentially it's yeah. not being strengthened like it should. And exactly. this is an example of, you know, like Nate said, kipping pull-ups, kipping pull-ups aren't bad. Mm-hmm. Kipping pull-ups are a great tool to increase muscle endurance mm-hmm. and and to be able to get a lot of work done in a really short period of time. Mm-hmm. However, if you're doing kipping pull-ups before your shoulder has the capacity to handle it, when you add in that velocity, if you think about coming down from the, the top of a pull-up mm-hmm. and you're snapping into that bottom of that arch shape, like... I don't know what it is as far as force goes, but it's got to be 2X, 3X, your actual body weight that's going onto the shoulder. Yeah, I don't think people realize like, so there is, um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there's there's, uh, force measurements looking at when people just do depth jumps off of a box, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you jump off a, 24 inch box, you might be getting like six to seven times your body. And tell people what a a depth jump is. Uh, So basically just jumping off a box onto the ground and kind of absorbing that force. So just jumping off of something, right? Um, and so when you're, when you're running, even a slow jog, you're experiencing about two times your body weight each time your foot hits the ground, like a a good sprinter can get up to six to seven times their body weight. Right. And so these are huge numbers. Like you can't do that squatting. Sure. Like there, you could, I mean, unless you're in an absolutely spectacular, I don't think anybody squats six times. Yeah. I don't think so. So um, And, And so is that because it's such a short period of time, your body can hang in for that moment. But if it was an extended period of time, just no way that it's going to happen. Yeah. Our tissues, our tissues have this quality called viscoelasticism where they act like um, a solid when there's a really high velocity stress on them, but there's, they act a little more like a liquid or like they're more malleable when it's a slower velocity Mm -hmm. velocity thing. And Mm -hmm. so when you hit the ground, like your, your body acts like your body is very strong when it, when it decelerates that quickly, Mm -hmm. basically like nothing, you could like that. That's when you're going to run into things like tendons, like pulling off a bone or stuff like that. Um, but you're probably not going to like necessarily tear a muscle jumping. Um, sure. You might, I guess. But and so if we know that this is an issue, right? Mm-hmm. We know, especially like you said, and 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 exercise that is more like sport, something like mm-hmm. CrossFit or strongman or something like that. We know mm-hmm. that this is a problem. What are some ways that people can change their thinking or things that they could potentially do in order to mitigate risk here? And that's essentially what I define prehab as. Mm-hmm. And, and 
Is that A, is, is that how you would define prehab? And B, what are some things that people could, could maybe keep an eye on or do? Yes, yeah, so I, would, I, would, yeah, I would define prehab as like the work you put in specifically to decrease injury risk, basically. And that might overlap with accessory work to like improve performance and stuff like that. But um, so I would say like, first off is we, we know that the more of something you do, the better you get at it, right? So if you want to improve a skill, you want to improve kipping pull-ups, you want to improve clean and jerks, um, box jumps, whatever, double unders, like you have to do that. And the more you do of it, probably the better you're going to get at it. Right. But there's, there's a balancing point where you do enough of it and you can't recover from it. And that's kind of what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And so you want to sort of find where that threshold is, you know, you don't want to actually injure yourself, but you want to push up to the point of like, things are going to like, I'm a little achy maybe. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, like this is the weekly volume I can deal with on this movement, maybe this combination of movements. And then instead of adding more clean and jerks to make your triceps bigger or something like that. You do like really, really low stress, uh, like isolation bodybuilding movements. Right. And so that's, you know, if you're, if your clean and jerk is limited by your leg drive, you would work on things that make your quads bigger because you're probably not going to get better clean and jerking, but just jumping. Right. But just trying to produce more force, like the clean and jerk itself is going to be that skill that you practice. Right. Um, but if your quads are bigger, your, your quads can produce more force in that skill. Mm-hmm. And so strength is the combination of like the, how big your muscles are and how your brain uses those muscles to produce force basically. Right. right? And the coordination and all that. Um, and so if you, if you were limited by leg drive, you'd want your quads to be bigger. If you're limited by that last little bit of lockout, then maybe you want your triceps or your delts to be bigger. And so you would do like, you know, skull crushers, um, just straight up bodybuilding style, like somewhere between like eight to 30 reps close to failure. Um, do a few sets of that a week. And then that is still stress, right? So it's not like that's stress free. Um, so if you, start to experience issues adding in like bodybuilding volume that you'd want to probably decrease the bodybuilding volume and the other stuff just a little bit until it gets back under. Yeah, exactly. And and so essentially it's, it's, you know, in, in CrossFit, the sort of tagline is constantly varied functional movement performed Mm -hmm. at high intensity, right? Mm -hmm. And functional movement is further defined as, um, movement that is multi-joint that is core to extremity, and that allows large loads to be carried long distances quickly. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what we need to do in the prehab world is essentially the opposite of that, mm-hmm. right? Not always, but a yeah. lot of them are single joint modalities. They are a little bit slower, maybe some isometrics, like just really winding back from those core tenants mm-hmm. of, of CrossFit or boot camp or any of the other stuff that we yeah. do. Yeah. And so, so one of the, and, and it's, it's tough too, cause like in an hour long class, like you probably do need to be focusing on just the big, right. You don't have, you don't have three hours a day to train sure. kind of thing. Uh, but probably my favorite, one of my favorite examples of this. So Matt Fraser, after he retired from CrossFit, um, did a bunch of interviews on his YouTube. And like, so he talked about, um, he had to have a lot of running volume in, right. To, to stay good at running and not spectacular runner. And for whatever reason, he just got really good at for it. sure. Um, so he put a lot of running time in and, um, he, his, but he found that his forearms would fatigue doing double unders. And if he tried to practice double unders and the running volume he needed, then he got Achilles tendinopathy. And so then it, then it hit us both, right? So what he did, and then actually you guys have like a similar thing out here. I just saw for the, the split uh, ropes. That, yeah. yeah. So he just tied a golf ball to a string and would just stand there and do like double under um, movements with his wrist without jumping. Right. Cause yeah. like he can jump, he can jump. Sure. So he would just do that till his forearms um, would get tired and then build up forearm endurance like that. And so that's a, really good example of like a much, much lower stress movement than actually doing the double unders. He could do much more volume with that. And then his forearms wouldn't like, he got the adaptations he needed in a way that didn't interfere with his ability to continue running as much as he needed to make that good. Right. So it's, and obviously like there's so many things in CrossFit that it's harder to balance than just doing those two things together. Of course. Um, But just kind of keeping that framework in mind, I guess is, 
And that's that's a a huge part of the reason that in in our classes, like we regularly implement accessory type work, Mm -hmm. which like Nate said, not only is that going to help on the prehab front, but it's also going to improve the performance by working on the the typical limiting factors for certain movements that, that aren't addressed in the, the, the functional movement patterns yeah. necessarily. And then the only issue with that is like, it is boring, right? Like nobody, nobody want. I mean, some people want to sit there and do curls. I like to do curls. <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, it is, it's not nearly as sexy. And yeah, I think that's yeah. why a lot of people don't want to do prehab work because it's not as fun as doing snatches and clean and jerks and, yeah. you know, doing a workout like Fran, for example. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So you mentioned at one point, like, you want to push to a place where it is on the edge, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is, maybe you are a little bit achy and you do have some soreness from working Mm -hmm. out. When, what are some signs that you've gone too far? Like what is the difference between, and when is it okay to work around like aches and pains, which Mm -hmm. are just part of life versus an actual injury? Yeah, I would, man, that's a, that's a tough one. It's probably going to be a little different for everyone. Right. Um, I would almost look more to to performance potentially as a okay as meaning that you that. see so like, performance decreasing yeah or just like staying stale right if you're if you're so there's a, we don't have to get too much into this there's this really cool uh, concept called the constrained energy expenditure model that's um, kind of picked up steam in the last five or six years and basically it it's basically just a model that says that your body allocates has, has a limited amount of resources and it allocates those resources to where it needs to be. Right. And so, um, this, this has impacts on weight loss and weight gain. If you, there are some people that have uh, more adaptive metabolisms. And so when they try to create a calorie deficit to lose weight, their, their hypothalamus will regulate and like, they'll be more prone to sit on the couch for more hours mm-hmm. or they'll like have a lower body temperature, their, their immune system function will dip down. And so they don't actually, um, decrease they don't actually have as much of a calorie deficit deficit, yeah yeah. so their body adapts to it right um and so this will this this happens kind of ish in sport too so there's this on the extreme end of this there's something called um a relative energy deficiency in sport where you can be eating like 2500 to 3000 calories a day like a pretty healthy amount of calories but if your activity level is so so high like you're an elite athlete that you're um still kind of in a deficit or just like barely eating at maintenance then your, your body's going to compensate by like shutting things down. Right. So this used to be like the female athlete triad, but it happens in men too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like women will experience like amenorrhea and decreased immune function. And so you'll start to see performance dip in those people. And it's not, it's not like full blast overtraining syndrome. Like that's really more of an endurance athlete, Mm -hmm. uh, situation. Like it it could probably happen in CrossFit. I feel like CrossFit for sure that, um, but if you're, if you're doing so much that like you're pretty achy all the time and your performance is very stale or decreasing, um, or even if just like your motivation starts decreasing, it's like, uh, kind of sore. Don't really want to go to the gym. Those are all good indicators of like, maybe you should do a little bit less. Um, okay. So just, so really just paying attention to how you're more mental is doing than the physical is, is what yeah. you're saying. Like that seems to be a really good place to, to focus your attention and make, yeah. and make sure that you're just not burned out or, or overtired or sleeping like crap mm-hmm. or whatever, not necessarily that you're noticing the aches and the pains in your, in your training. Yeah. And if, you know, there's, there's always, if you're pushing hard, like, right. If you're, if you're trying to improve your performance, you're going to be pushing your body close to that breaking point regardless, right? Especially if you're competing against other people, like whoever, whoever does the most is going to be experienced the greatest results and everyone's going to be pushing up to that point of like, I can't recover from this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so there's there's probably going to be some achy stuff you know but if it you know if it lasts more than a few weeks like most injuries do go away on their own if you hurt your back it's probably going to be gone in like four to six weeks you'll be fine um if you like if you experience a knee tweak you might need to take it just a little bit easier for a few weeks it'll go away on its own if it doesn't go away at that point um like within around probably three to four weeks after it really starts popping up, then that might be a bigger cause for concern. Like something is not adapting to what it needed to adapt to. And in that um, period of time, in that, you know, let's say we got a knee tweak and mm-hmm. like you just said, it's it's going to happen to a lot of people. And we're in that period of three to four weeks of evaluation and seeing if this is going to come back and just, mm-hmm. you know, it's gradually improving. What should people be doing during their training during that period of time mm-hmm. um, so that they do allow that injury to heal? Like, what are some things that they can think about or keep eyes on? Yeah. So let, let's like pick a specific thing. So like, um, say like you get patellar tendinopathy, like your knee kind of tweaks and the front of your knee is hurting um, with squats. So first thing I would do um, is say, take out the high velocity stuff. So uh, and I know usually I wouldn't say like, don't do this anymore. Right. But especially in CrossFit, like we probably need to take something out. Sure. Um, so probably decrease the running and the jumping um, and maybe even stuff like wall balls where you're kind of bouncing out of the hole. Mm-hmm. And then if that, if the pain is still intolerable, like you, the, the next week you've taken all this stuff out, you've been in about a week and the pain really hurts with squatting still, then we probably decrease the load on the squatting and slow the tempo down a little bit. And so this is where like, I'm not like a huge fan of tempo work outside of rehab, but I think it has a lot of application in rehab because the, again, force equals mass times acceleration, right? So the, the smaller those accelerations are, the less force your tissues are going to experience. And so you can at least keep some squatting in, um, on that knee. If you can slow it down a bit and decrease the load, and that's going to be better than doing nothing because if you do nothing, your muscle gets smaller and you lose performance. And then like your tendon's probably not going to get better if you do nothing either. Like mm-hmm. it just kind of sits there and it might not hurt, but then when you go back to it, it'll probably hurt again. Um, so basically finding, finding an entry point where you can do enough to get some tissue adaptation, but not so much that it uh, creates a pain, res- a, a huge pain response, right? So like a two, two to four out of 10 is probably okay, especially with tendinopathy. Um, if it's like nerve pain down your leg, you probably want to mostly avoid that. Um, but So what about... Um, outside the gym stuff like mm-hmm. any supporting things that people could be doing should be doing to yeah. to help things get back on track yeah I and mean, it's the traditional like sleep enough right like um eat enough and sleep enough there's i had a i have a patient um it comes in every so often that uh dude's super active like he he was a, a police officer and he like runs an online fitness program um like just you know just jacked um but he had sciatica for like a year straight and he had a newborn. He has, he has two young kids and one of them is a newborn. And like, he finally like started sleeping eight hours a night instead of five hours a night. And like two weeks later, sciatica is gone. Like now that, you know, we needled him, we did Jefferson curls, we did deadlifts, he did single leg stuff. He bought BFR cuffs so he could keep training his lower body um, with, with minimal load, uh, blood flow restriction. If you don't know what that is and like nothing like sciatica just, and he'd slept enough and it went away. Um, <laughs> Like, so it's the magic pill. Yeah. And that's, so, I mean, we can get into pain science if you want a little bit and why that works. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Yeah. I think okay. that, that was a, that was a place that I wanted to go anyway okay. was, was yeah. What, what triggers pain and, yeah. and how to work around it and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, talk to yeah. you a little bit. So, so yeah, let's, let's kind of, I, I really like to use the example of a 
a guy walks up to you and sticks a knife in your leg, right? Because that's a really clear case of actual tissue damage. So you have this knife stuck in your leg. Um, you have tissue damage to your leg. You don't feel pain in your leg. So initially what happens is you get these slow conducting nerve fibers called nociceptors that detect chemical temperature, uh, mechanical or acid change. And there's a few other things they can detect too. But um, so in the case of the knife in your leg, these slow conducting nerve fibers would detect that there's a mechanical change. And then within a few minutes to a few hours, uh, they get this chemical change as, as inflammatory molecules come in and start to like try and break things down and build things back up and repair the area. Um, so these nerve fibers start shooting off signals to your spinal cord and then they go from your spinal cord up to your brain. They go to a part of your brain called the thalamus that kind of works as a switchboard. And then um, they go up to another part of your brain called the somatosensory cortex where like your body is represented um, in your brain. And so at this point, your, your brain uh, is receiving those nociceptive signals. And these are basically just fire alarm signals. So again, these are not pain signals. If you if a fire alarm goes off in your house, it doesn't tell you there's a fire, right? A fire alarm tells you, go check it out. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the same thing. Like you have to go see if the, if the stove is on or if there's an actual fire or if there's like steam coming out of the bathroom. Um, but you don't, the sound of the fire alarm doesn't tell you that. You have to figure it out. So your brain, same idea, has to interpret these nociceptive signals to figure out what's going on. And it does that through the help of other sensory inputs too. So like what you're seeing, what you're hearing, other things you're feeling, um, proprioceptive information so like, how fast you're moving, uh, how much load you're under, if you're off balance, all this kind of stuff uh, goes to the same area and then gets processed. And so your brain takes all these signals. So in the case of the knife in your leg, you would look down, you get the visual input of like, oh, there's a knife stuck in my leg. Um, you get the auditory input of the guy yelling, ha ha, I stuck a knife in your leg. Um, <laughs> guy sucks. Um, you get the uh, tactile input of like blood running down your leg, right? And so you get these, these alert signals, these danger signals, these nociceptive signals with those other signals, your brain mushes them all together and starts trying to figure out what's going on based on the sensory inputs, but it can't do that just based on the sensory inputs. So it has to put it in the context of the situation. Um, and I feel like this is illustrated best by like, if you, if anybody has like really young kids or has had young kids at one point, like, um, if you're, if your kid's walking around like, you know, a year and a half old and they fall down and smack their face on the ground, what do they do before they cry? look around. Yeah. They look around. They like, look at mom, look at dad, like yeah. what just happened. Um, if, if the parents run up like, Oh, you're bleeding. Oh, this is the worst thing ever. Kid cries. Right. 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 Um, if the parents are like, Oh, that was good job. You fell down. That was awesome. Um, let's just wipe that off. You're good. Like kid'll get up, no crying, like blood running down the face. Totally <laughs> yeah. fine. Right. Yeah. So, and th that's extreme examples, but like the, it's the same sensory inputs, right? Like the kid falls down, they experience the proprioceptive info of like, oops, I lost my balance. They experience the mechanical changes to their forehead, the nociceptive signal saying like there's a mechanical change to the forehead. Um, they get the visual input of like, oh, here comes the ground. But they're a year and a half old. They don't know how to interpret those sensory inputs. And so they have to get the context from somewhere else. And so that's um, throughout our life, we build that context. We learn from others. We kind of get our own context. We touch the hot stove and like there's enough nociceptive signaling there that like, the context almost doesn't matter. Right. But you're going to learn the context of like don't touch the hot stove kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, and this continues through our life too. So as, as adults, we like get on WebMD and it tells us we have cancer. You know, like <laughs> I've had a headache and like, Oh, brain cancer. Always um, cancer. Yeah. You, uh, you go to the orthopedist and they tell you like, Oh, your knee is bone on bone. You need knee replacement. Um, you know, you go to the PT and they're like, Oh, well, you know, I don't think you should squat because it'll make your knee worse, but we should do some straight leg raises and stuff like that. And so we continue to build that context from authority figures, um, in regards to the sensory inputs we're experiencing. And so, this is where like when we're talking about sleep and like other contextual clues, these, this really matters. The messaging that healthcare providers give really, really matters because when I was talking about movement, movement optimism earlier, like 
there's always a way out of pain, right? Like there's, I've had multiple patients who had um, bone on bone in their knees or like in their hips. One guy in particular, like he was like a nine out of 10 pain all day long with his hip and like went into the orthopedist and they're like, you need a hip replacement and like got him squatting and deadlifting. And it's been four years and he's fine. Like he hasn't, he never had a hip replacement. Right. And so it's like, he just had some weakness in his hip and he had been told really bad things about his hip and that made the pain worse. And so kind of circling back around to these things. So we have those sensory inputs. We have the contextual clues, um, what you've been told, what your beliefs are. Um, So I watched a a video the mm -hmm. other day that I think is probably the opposite of what you're talking about, which Mm -hmm. is like the false hand experiment. Have you ever seen this? So crazy. So for those of you that don't know, basically the setup is you put um, one hand on the table Mm -hmm. and then your other hand is on the other side of a screen so that you can't see it. And then there's a fake hand on the table and they make your shirt look like it sort of is covering where your arm would be and it is connected to that hand. So visually, when you look down, there's a fake hand and your real hand, but you look at it and it kind of looks like the hand is connected to your body, Mm -hmm. right? And then a doctor comes or whoever's running the experiment comes and just has a ruler and then just will like tap different spots on the fake hand, but at the same time, they're tapping those spots on your real hand. And so your brain is starting to develop a connection that that hand is your hand. And then it'll start to scrape down the fingers on the fake hand and on your real hand. And then all of a sudden they get out a hammer and slam the fake hand and people freak out yeah. because they, they, they feel real pain. They think yeah. it is their hand. Is that true? Is that yeah. sort of like the opposite of that? Yeah. And that's, that's that, like they're creating the context of like, this is your hand. Like you have the context of the hammer's bad. Um, and you can, you, it's pretty easy to trick your brain, right? Like our brains are made for, um, like split second survival. And obviously humans are a little more advanced. Like we can plan ahead and stuff like that, but we are, we're made for like surviving split second situations. Right. For sure. Um, yeah. And so like when you, when you put that context in there, so like what people tell you, um, what your beliefs are, and then you also add in things like how your immune system is functioning. If, if, if it's, uh, so like if you've ever had the flu, your whole body gets achy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't experience joint pain through your, like your, your, well, you're experiencing joint pain. You didn't experience joint damage through your whole body, right? Mm-hmm. Like your, your elbows and your knees didn't get attacked by the flu, but right. they hurt because your brain is, your brain knows you're sick. It's trying to use pain to change your behavior. It's trying to protect you. And so it's bringing that threshold for where you would experience pain way, way, way down. And now it's like when I load my body weight onto my knee, it really hurts because mm-hmm. um, your brain's trying to protect you from expending too much energy so you don't die from the flu basically right got it um so immune system function matters and this is where like sleep really comes in too um and we don't really like sleep is one of those things we still don't really know that much about it but like it really seems to matter so if you even just for injury rates right if you get less than six hours of sleep a night your injury rate skyrockets um some like four to five hours a night and it's like something i'm gonna I'm going to get this number wrong. It was something like 70 times more likely to experience an injury doing activities. Dang, um, yeah, like wild. It rockets up. Um, but eight hours of sleep a night, you're generally pretty good. And so that goes along with pain too. Like people that come in with chronic pain that have had pain for a really long time that I see, there's almost always some sort of sleep issue. There's like, there's usually some sort of food issue where they're probably not eating enough and giving their body enough resources. Um, and then sometimes a lot of the time there's like some sort of weird autoimmune something going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so their immune system is overactive and that decreases the threshold for where they experience pain. Their sleep isn't great. And so that decreases the threshold and then they don't have enough resources to adapt to the load they are putting through their body. And so like they just get into this cycle of like, it hurts, it wakes me up at night, I can't sleep and now it hurts more. Um, and it's a, it's a vicious place to be for sure. 
But so your brain takes those circling back around. So your oh, brain yeah. takes those uh, sensory inputs, the contextual clues, pushes them all together. And it asks the question based on all the information as it has access to, is there a threat to my body? And if your brain decides there's a threat to your body, it creates the emotion of pain to try and protect you from that threat, right? So pain is on purpose. It's, it's useful, right? Like we t- I said earlier, like, you know, you touch the hot stove, you pull your hand away. There are people, I can't remember what it's called, but there are people that are born that don't experience pain um, and they wouldn't pull their hand away. So they would experience severe tissue damage, right? Like they would burn their hand and they wouldn't know what was happening. Um, and so... And, and those people tend to live pretty short or like pretty injury filled lives. Right. Sure. Like we all, all of us are like, Oh, I don't want to experience pain, but it's, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's your brain trying to protect you. Your brain creates pain to try and change your behavior to protect you from damaging your body. So your body can continue to function appropriately. Um, the problem is that our brains learn really, really well. And so like I was talking about that threshold earlier for, uh, the pain threshold can go up and down. The amount of stimulus it takes to produce a pain response can increase or decrease. And again, everyone's experienced that if you've been sick or like you, you have a bad day at work or like you're stressed and you get a headache, stuff like that. Like the nociceptive information from your body, the, the changes to mechanical stuff and chemical stuff and acid and and all that stuff is probably not really changing that much day to day, but your pain threshold can go up and down. And so you might experience pain with less load or like less activity. Um, so is that something that you, you focus on is trying yeah. to work on, on dealing with the pain threshold and dealing with pain response mm-hmm. versus the mechanical side of things? Or it's, it's a mix of both. I it's assume, a mix. Yeah? Of, yeah. So the, the really, the really nice thing about it is I think the mechanical side of things does modulate that pain response. So like there's obvious, I can't, I can't make someone sleep more. Like we can, we can talk about it at, I don't know if I've had success having making anyone besides the one guy, <laughs> <Me> right? Either, <laughs> yeah. Um, like the one guy that got a sad, I got to go away. So we'll see if that continues. But um, it, the because pain is a protective response when it when your brain thinks there's a threat to your body, you can make your brain think less likely to think there's a threat to your body if your body is stronger, right? And so that's. Um, increasing tissue capacity in an area um, that's just increasing physical activity in general sometimes like making your body a little bit healthier and so the mechanics do matter and the nociception does matter too right if you if you have that patellar tendinopathy again like that pain in the front of the knee you go down into a squat and it hurts we decrease the load a little bit and it doesn't hurt like that's because there's less mechanical nociception happening Mm -hmm. and there's less fire alarms going off right in your brain once it's paying attention to a spot it's paying a lot of attention to that spot and so if we have less fire alarms going off then your brain may not feel as if it needs to create that pain response um and so that is like i think that's where a lot of there was the uh what's it called the great like the great pain science movement i don't know something like that um where people like got too much into pain science and i was probably guilty of this too Mm -hmm. um is like everything is pain science. Like it's all your brain and it technically is, right? Sure. You don't, you don't have pain without the brain, but technically every, like everything yeah. is through your consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But that doesn't mean that you can't change it through mechanical loading sure. um, and mechanical changes basically. Got so um, not always, right. There are people that, you know, like fibromyalgia patients, like they're, they're going to have to like figure out something for their immune system and for their, their sleep and, and all that stuff to really get all the way out of pain. But got it. Um, all right, we are pushing up towards the end here. I'm going to ask you one more question, which okay. is when is it appropriate to just rest, like straight up do nothing, or is it ever appropriate to do mm-hmm. that? Like what are your thoughts there? And maybe uh, if you're just like, if your motivation is just shot, right? So like, uh, so I have a competition this weekend and then I have another one in two weeks and I'm probably just going to take a week off after that. Like yeah. I just don't. 
like I'm kind of over the lifting thing right right at the moment because of that. Um, How about like post acute injury? Yeah. Is, is that a time that you need to just do nothing for a little bit, or would you rather do something that you can do that doesn't involve that acute injury? Yeah, I would say work around it. So, and there's always always a way to work around it, right? Like if you have a boot on your ankle, you can do single leg squats on the other side. You can do knee extensions, hamstring curls. If you, um, so. This actually happened to me. So I had, um, I tore my labrum. I had a slap tear in my left shoulder and I tore the bicep tendon out of the shoulder. So I did end up getting surgery on that. And the week before surgery, as, as I was waiting for surgery, uh, like in the month leading up to it, I decided like, okay, I'll just do a bunch of safety bar squats. Um, uh, overdid it on the safety bar squats <laughs> and tore my adductor magnus uh. on my right leg. Yeah. Like popped, like bruising down the leg. Couldn't, couldn't weight bear through that leg. So I have this like useless left shoulder and useless right leg. <laughs> I uh, went through surgery. I was in a sling and, um, but there's still ways to work around that, right? Like I could, maybe I shouldn't have, I don't know, but like, no, I, you know, yeah. like I went into the gym, like rolled a wall ball along the floor and like, um, hip hinged as I could tolerate, like not very far. It hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do like one legged assault bike, one arm assault bike, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. and it, if you put an appropriate amount of load through tissue, it usually heals faster. So if you, Obviously, if I like gone straight back to like, oh, I tore my adductor magus, I'm going to try and squat 135 again. Like that would have probably not right. worked out, right? Like that would have probably torn it more at that because yeah. it was so injured. But like, you know, like doing like box squats to 24 inches with most of my load on my good leg, on my non-injured leg, um, with a little bit of load through the right leg, stimu- I think probably stimulated it to be a little bit faster healing. Um, and it's just, it's, it's always healthier to do some physical, like physical activity. So one of the, one of the, sorry, I don't want to go over time. No, 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 you work it. One of the positive mechanisms, and it hasn't been like really experimented on yet. So we don't have like definitive proof of this, but one of the mechanisms by which exercise is so healthy is that it actually brings your immune system function down a little bit, right? So it's not overly active. So there's like a happy medium of how much immune system function you could have. If it's too low, you, you know, you get sick and you die from the cold. If it's too high, then, um, you get autoimmune responses and your body reacts to itself and like bad and you get a higher chronic inflammatory response in your body. And so bad things happen. And so some energy expenditure through exercise keeps it probably keeps it at that happy medium. Right. And so even if you can't, like if you're too injured, if, if you're a power lifter and you want to deadlift and you're too injured to deadlift, like there's just no variation of deadlift you can do go on walks, do some cardio, like figure out like bench press, work upper body, like do something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost always better than doing nothing. And this so. is why, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but back in the day when somebody had like an MCL ACL repair, they're in a brace, they're not doing anything for six mm-hmm. weeks, right? Like that leg was immobilized for a period of time and they're not yeah. doing anything. Now somebody has a knee surgery, they're trying to get them to flex that knee almost immediately. Yeah. And it's yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Like movement here is going to help improve recovery. Yep. Cause you're like, they're, Cause for, if you do nothing, like you're going to lose all your muscle mass, right? Like right. if, if there's no loading on a limb, like you can lose muscle mass pretty quickly. And so it's hard to build that back. And then your brain also forgets where your leg is. So like the map of your leg and your brain um, becomes very blurry and your brain re- forgets how to use the leg and recruit musculature. And so like, if you do nothing for six weeks, that might be like a two year recovery period. Right. You have to like basically learn how to use your leg again. You have to learn how to use it well enough that you can load it high enough to get muscle mass back. Like it's a, it's way worse. And that's, so, um, people that have meniscus tears are usually still non-weight bearing for six weeks. So if you have ACL meniscus tear and those are way harder to rehab than people with just an ACL tear, mm-hmm. um, cause they can at least walk on their leg, you know, gotcha. like ACL tears, you can squat in like a week or two. For sure. Um, got it. So, 
All right. Um, anything? Well, a couple things. One, anything that you want to say that we didn't touch on, and also just let the people know where you're going, where they can find you, best way to hook up with you in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah I think I'm I'm pretty happy with the top suite cover. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, for sure, dude. It's a pleasure. So I'm gonna be inside of uh, Duff down in. It's right off Long Point in Mount Pleasant. Okay. Um, best way to find me is probably just my Instagram, Be Better PT. Um, my phone number's on there. I have a website if you want to book online. Um, but yeah, feel free to like, you can text me through the phone number on there. You can reach out through Instagram. Like it, it doesn't bug me at all. So, um, and what's the process look like if somebody is getting started with you? Is it an intake call? They come in and see you. What's the, how's it go? Yeah. So I usually, when, once someone reaches out, like I usually try and do a phone call. I want to talk about like pricing cause I am out of network. So I want to make sure they're okay with that. Um, each, each visit's decently expensive. Um, and then basically talk about the process of coming in and then just do the eval. And then I'll usually, most people end up going like three to four weeks before a second visit, like working through a bit of a process before they come back in. Cause you can't, you can't really make a change in a week for sure. Um, unless they really like, like dry needling or something, you know, <laughs> then it. they can come in more often, but cool. Um, yeah, that's about it. So. Good deal. Well, yeah, guys, yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, um, Nate is the guy in town that you want working on you. If you are an athletic human that wants to get back to doing the stuff that you love, he's helped me a ton along the way. Um, like I said, if you've been on the fence, stop waiting. If you're at loco, get in here before he goes. If you're not here, um, you know, go see him at Duff here in the next, next little bit. It, it is, he's where I send everyone. He's, he's the guy that you want hands on as far as practitioner goes in town. So awesome. thanks, thanks for man. being here, dude. Yeah, appreciate you. you. Yeah. Appreciate you. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Loco podcast, where our goal is to turn you into a kick-ass 90 year old and help you do lots of cool stuff along the way. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend. When you're ready for your individualized fitness and nutrition prescription, head on over to locomotionfit.com and click the free intro button to learn more.